Thank you, Dr. Noer. Um, our family is, uh, we probably spend way too much time on Disney+. Plus. I don't know if you guys subscribe to that or not, but it's one of the greatest things that's happened to me in the last 20 years, probably. I love it. There's a lot of good stuff on there. One of the things we watched together over the past month or so is a show called Welcome to Earth. If you watch that, it has Will Smith as the host. You remember the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Maybe you don't remember him, but I remember him when he was the Fresh Prince. Um, and now he's like in his 50s, you know, so he's not so fresh anymore. Um, but he introduces it. It's this National Geographic show where basically he wanted to explore the world. He wanted these people to show him the farthest ends of the world. And so he goes out with these different explorers and, and different people, photographers and scientists, and they go to different places like volcanoes, the bottom of the ocean, uh, to explore different parts and things that he's never been part And he introduces it with, like, I've never slept in a tent. I don't like to go hiking. I'm scared of water, <laughs> you know. I grew up in the city. And uh, so all these things are really new to him. And in one of, the, one of the episodes is called The Mind of the Swarm. And he talks about different, they, they look at different animals like wildebeests, like herds of wildebeests and flocks of starlings. You ever watch a f- huge flock of thousands of starlings and how they fly like all in unison? Like one turns and all thousand of them turn and it's just crazy beautiful. Uh, same thing, you know, with the wildebeests. Like their whole thing is when are they going to cross the river and who gets to decide who crosses the river? And then they go, and it's on. Everybody goes. And uh, they look at beehives and, and their swarming patterns and how they respond defensively all together at once. And it's almost like they have this group mind in unity with one another. And in January, we've been looking at the identity of the church. And the, the connection here is that today we're going to look at the unity of the church. What does it mean that, that Christ has created a church that is one Body. It's the metaphor we're going to look at today, which is one of the most prevalent and perhaps the most profound metaphors of the church that we find in the New Testament. It's in several places, including here in Ephesians and 1 Corinthians as well. And it points to really this identity that we have as one people, as one, as one body with different parts who have to function together in order to be healthy And this identity should motivate us towards one of our core values as a church as we understand who we are as the body of Christ. It should motivate us. It should point us towards this value we have of generous love. In order to be the body of Christ in a healthy, God-glorifying way, we have to practice generous love. So if you're there in Ephesians 4, awesome. If not, I'd love for you to grab a Bible and turn there. There's some in your pews if you didn't bring one. Most of you have them on your phones. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1. This is the Apostle Paul writing and he's writing obviously to the church in Ephesus and he's, he's spent three chapters basically telling them who they are and now he's going to begin telling them what that means, how to live, what the, what the onus is, what the impetus of our identity is for us. He begins this way. He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord. And I'm going to pause right there. We're not going to get very far, by the way, today. We're going to spend a lot of time in the first three or four verses. Um, But most of your translations say a prisoner of the Lord or a prisoner for the Lord. 
I'm going to quibble with the translators here because nowhere in the text does it actually say of or for. It actually says in. That's the word that's there, in. And translators have had, made, have to, had to make decisions on what to put there, but the word is in. It says, I therefore a prisoner in the Lord. And what I, what I think Paul is getting at here when he says he's a prisoner in the Lord, not for the Lord, not of the Lord, but in the Lord, is he's getting to this identity that he has of being united to Christ. He's a prisoner in the Lord, and his, his unity with Christ, his oneness with Christ as a believer is core to who he is. And he's a prisoner bonded, if you will, bonded like a prisoner in unity to Christ. I, therefore, a prisoner in the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner Worthy of the calling to which you have been called. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And what calling exactly is that? So Paul's identity here as a prisoner in the Lord reminds us he's a prisoner literally, right? He's in prison. He's in jail. He's writing these letters from a jail cell. He says, I'm a prisoner in the Lord, but that doesn't define who I am. I'm a prisoner in the Lord. It's not my circumstances that define me. It's not our circumstances that define us. It's Jesus who defines us. Our identity is found in connection to him. So when the Apostle Paul speaks of walking in a manner worthy of of this calling, this is exactly what he's getting at. He's saying to these Ephesians, be who you are. Live out who you are. And who are we? Well, that's the calling to which we've been called as Christians. So I'm going to back all the way up. I told you we're not going to get very far. So I keep going backwards. We're going to back all the way up to Ephesians 1. And really quickly, we're going to look at what Paul says our calling is. And it's, first of all, an individual calling for us as individual believers and followers of Jesus, disciples of Christ. But it's also a corporate calling. So if you go to Ephesians 1-4, really quickly, it says that Jesus, or God, chose us in Christ that we should be holy and blameless. That's our calling. We're chosen. We're to be holy and blameless. Verse 5, we've been predestined to adoption as sons and daughters. We are children of a heavenly father through Christ. Verse 7, in him we have redemption. We are people who've been bought back by Jesus. Verse 11, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined. We're, We're a people who are heirs of the greatest inheritance in the world. Verse 12, So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Part of our calling is that we exist for God's glory. We go into chapter 2 and we see in verses 1 through 6 that we are people who were once dead in our trespasses and sins. But now we are made alive together with Christ. Not only are we made alive, but we are raised up with Christ and we are seated in the heavenly places right now with Christ. Christ. You want to talk about being in Christ? That's where we are. We're in the heavenly places right now in Christ. That's our calling. Verse 10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
Brothers and sisters, we're sons and daughters chosen by God to be holy and blameless. We're redeemed. We have an inheritance. We have a hope. We exist for God's glory. We were once dead. Now we're alive. We've been forgiven. We've been raised and put with Christ. He's made us a workmanship and he's given us a job. That's a calling, would you say? If anybody's confused on your calling, there it is. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. There it is. That's who you are. That's how you're supposed to live. But he doesn't stop there. He moves from this individual idea of who we are as followers of Jesus, believers in Christ, and he moves to this corporate calling, Ephesians 2.15. He says that he, Jesus, might create in himself one new man, one new person, one new humanity in the place of the two, speaking of Jew and Gentile, so making peace. Christ has made peace between people who shouldn't be at peace. He's brought them to be in the same body. So chapters 1 through 3 expound on this calling of God's people accomplished by Christ in the gospel, which according to 3.9 is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So for ages, God has had this plan and it's come to fruition in the church. Verse 6 says, this mystery is that the Gentiles are now fellow heirs, members of the same body. So what has God been planning from ages and eternity past? He has been planning that he would make a people for himself out of all the diverse people in the world, out of every tribe, tongue, and people and nation, and he would make one people for himself, and he's done that in the church. That's who we are. It's not a small thing. It's a big deal that God has done this and called us to this grand call, and then Now Paul says, okay, I urge you now to walk in a manner worthy of that. What does it mean to walk worthily of all of that? It's this corporate calling, really, which carries the power of of Paul's urging here. So when he says, I urge you to walk worthily in verse 1, the you is plural. He's speaking to everyone. He's speaking to them as a corporate body. It's a, it's a communal exhortation. I speak to all of you as one people. He's calling them together to walk as a body in a certain way. Now, this will affect every one of us, and every one of us has to be part of it as an individual. But if we only read this as an individual exhortation, then we're missing the point. It is for us. I urge you. To walk worthily. The term walk, Paul uses this throughout Ephesians to really refer to a way of life, how you live. So it's metaphorical walk. You live in a certain way. You act in a certain way. This is the way that people see you walk. So the church has a calling then as a body, and this body is to walk together in a certain way. And the word worthily here, I urge you to walk Worthily describes the way in which we are to walk. The, the term literally means to bring up the other end of the balance. So you guys have seen the old balances, right? Where you weigh things, you put something on one side, and then you put the weights on the other to find out how much, how much mass or how much those things weigh. And this word literally means that our conduct, that, that, that to, be, to walk worthily is to walk in such a way where the balances are squared, where I, our identity and our actions line up on the same level. 
So our conduct is to be in balance with our identity, to mirror it, to reflect it, to be a perfect match. So so if all that we've already stated about us is, is true, if we truly are the chosen, called, loved, adopted, forgiven, and transformed new people of God, then the question is, what should it look like to be the church? You guys still with me? I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What does this look like? And we're going to, to answer this question, we're going to jump down to verse 3. Because in verse 3, I, I believe that Paul is giving us kind of the overarching exhortation of this passage, which is this. Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Be eager to maintain the unity, bless you, uh, of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul, Paul calls believers to maintain unity with eagerness. Be eager. Be, be zealous. Do this in a zealous manner. Spare no effort. Spare no expense to maintain unity. So when's the last time you spared no expense to do anything? When's the last time you spared no effort to do something? When's the last time you left it all on the field? This is something that we do, if we ever do it, when things are serious, right? When we really care about something, when the stakes are high, when we believe in something with all of our heart, when it's a matter of life and death. Okay, when we're in a situation where the outcome really doesn't matter to us. Like you turn the, you turn the, the, the TV on and, and, the, and it's a football game and it's like Wyoming Tech versus Southern Connecticut, you know, uni- like community college. And you're like, okay, I could go either way on this. I don't really care about the outcome of this. But if Oregon State or U of O is on, all of a sudden, you know, you're dressed in green or orange and you're about to, ready to punch somebody. Okay, you have skin in the game. That's just a small example. But in, in real life, it might actually be like, I've got skin in the game. My child has cancer. I'm going to do everything I can to get them well. I'm going to spare no expense, spare no effort to do this. It's life or death. We care about it, and we want our skin in the game. So in this, when, when, when Paul says, be eager, spare no effort, no expense to maintain this unity, he's asking us, have you left everything on the field for the unity of my church? Is it worth it to you? Because for Christ, it certainly was. He left everything on the field for the church. He spared no expense for you and me to be forgiven and redeemed and made part of his people. What about us? Eager, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. The word maintain implies that unity is something that's given to us rather than something we created. It's the unity of the Spirit. The Spirit is the author of unity. We are not. Paul is not saying to the church, Be united, make unity, make it happen. He's saying it's already been given to you as a gift, now maintain it. You don't build your car, but you're responsible to maintain it, right, Tom? Yes, cars don't die from lack of 
What? Dirt? They die of neglect, yeah. And that's the same thing with unity. Unity dies because we neglect it, because we fail to maintain it. If you fail to maintain your car, it won't last. But without proper maintenance, the unity of the church can also suffer from serious damage because of neglect. So when it comes to unity, we're charged with taking good care of someone else's property, namely God's property. The unity that he has created and we are charged with maintaining it eagerly. Maintain, be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And that, that word bond there is actually linked to the word prisoner up in verse 1. They, came, they come from the same root. Paul was a prisoner in the Lord, meaning that he was bound to Jesus as a slave. And the word bond could then refer to chains that went with a prisoner's sentence, right? You, you, you're in prison, you're chained. The implication is that believers are chained or bound together. That what God has done with the church is he's stitched us together. He's, he's bound us, he's united us together like the seams of a garment are stitched together. And that's the bond he's given us, creating us in us basically a, a uni, unified bond of protection And the bond given to us is one of peace, which has been ultimately given to us in Christ. You look back a couple chapters to Ephesians 2.14, and Paul says that he himself, Jesus, is our peace. He's made us both one. He's broken down his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility. He's given us peace with God, and he's given us peace with each other, a peace that he himself died to win. The church is the impossible, yet the very real and visible, spirit-filled expression of the, of the bond of peace that's bought and paid for by Jesus Christ. So here's where we're at. As Christians, we live out our calling, we live out our identity by living well with each other. We live out our identity by living well with each other. And we accomplish this when we love one another well. In other words, we together are able to walk worthily of our calling by walking in generous love. And then Paul in verse 2 is going to explain how to do that. What does that look like for me to be a person who walks in generous love in order to eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit? For us, what that means is that we would maintain unity in these four ways. Verse 4, the means, basically, for maintaining unity. First of all, excuse me, verse 2. First of all, with all humility. Now, you turn on the news, and humility is not normally a virtue that you see praised on the news or in, in pop culture. It's not held in honor by the word. In fact, by the world, it's, it's, it's looked down on as weakness. Humility, when you live in humility, it often looks and feels like you have lost. Like you come up against someone else's will, or you come up in, in battle, and you're the one that runs away. You're the one that backs down. It feels embarrassing. It feels frustrating, especially when it's not chosen, 
You can choose humility and still have it feel frustrating because our flesh lashes out against humility. We don't want to be weak. We want to be powerful. But for unity to work, humility has to take place because we have to treat others better or even as more important than ourselves. That is absolutely essential. And we can define humility that way, that we would treat or see others as more important than ourselves. And what humility does is it it opposes the great murderers of unity, which are selfishness and pride and conceit and boasting. All those things that rear up and want to compete with everyone else, we have to put down for the sake of unity. And Paul says, with all gentleness, gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit, and gentleness may seem like weakness, but it's not weakness. Gentleness is really a a conscious self-control. The ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle called gentleness the virtue of regulating anger. And Bible commentator William Barclay defined it as being being angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. Angry at the right time, in the right way, about the right things, at the right level, and not being angry in the wrong way, the wrong things, wrong, right? So only being angry when you're supposed to be angry and not being angry at other times. Jesus was gentle and lowly, right? But he wasn't a pushover. He got angry. He cleared out a temple when they were desecrating his father's house. He got angry. He had arguments with people. He pushed back on false belief. And injustice and all those things. Gentleness is the trait, though, of absorbing personal slights and affronts and quickly quickly forgiving rather than seeking revenge. So so if somebody attacks me, I, I absorb that, I forgive, I pursue oneness and peace in relationship, but I am quick to defend the weak, to address when they're wrongs, to stand up and do something, to stand up against threats that threaten the unity of the church. But by nature, gentleness, even though it's strong and angry when it needs to be, will usually take more hits than it hands out. Then Paul goes on to say, with all humility, with gentleness, with patience. Like gentleness, patience is another fruit of the Spirit, and it's also regularly referred to as an attribute of God in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's an attribute also of godly people. Patience is an expression of faith. It's telling God. It's living in such a way that we're telling God, we trust you, we trust your timing. We will wait for you to act. It's absolutely necessary as a character trait for those who would desire to maintain intact relationships with other sinners. Which, by the way, is what it means to be the church. We're trying to maintain intact relationships with people who are sinners. And I'm the biggest one. That's humility, by the way. (laughs) Say, I'm the biggest one. Um, I'm not saying I'm humble. I'm just saying you should say that if you are humble. Okay. Sorry. Humility, Humility is that one that as soon as you think you have it, you lost it, right? So, no, I'm not humble. All right, last one. So, with all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Some of your translations say forbearing. Same, same idea. And similar to patience, forbearance is endurance. It's endurance and restraint through trials. 
Okay, forbearance is endurance and restraint through trials. Interestingly, this is a word that's used in the New Testament to encourage Christians in how to, how to walk through persecution, forbear, endure, bear with it. And it's also the same word used when we're told to bear with each other. So we, we forbear through persecution, we forbear with each other. Sometimes those are the same thing. That was a joke. Okay. Because sometimes the two can wind up being the same thing, right? We, we feel like when we forbear with others, we're actually being persecuted or going through some kind of trials. But bearing with others is putting up with the things that irritate me rather than attacking them and the other person or every time something irritates me, trying to fix it. You need to change because you're annoying. You're bugging me. You're really getting under my skin. But to say I'm going to forbear with them is I don't have to attack that. I don't have to fix it. It chooses to live with diversity in the church. We're all different. We all do things that drive each other nuts. But forbearance actually moves towards people rather than away from people when we're confronted with difference. So if somebody doesn't look like me, if they don't like the same things I do, if they don't have the same opinions I do, if they don't smell the way I want them to smell, if they don't talk the way I want them to talk, if, if they treat other people in a way that I don't like, I'm going to continue to move towards them just like Jesus himself moves towards us all the time. And we're sinful, we're disobedient. We're constantly in hard-heartedness, turning ourselves away from him. And yet he asks us, forbear with others because I forbear with you. Now, does forbearance mean that we simply ignore sin? No, that's not the point. But if we're honest, I think the things that usually bug us about each other are not often sin issues. They're usually issues of personality Issues of preference or issues of opinion. So Paul says, bear with one another in love. And, and, and that in love piece means that our forbearance must be motivated and, and driven by God's generous love. And his generous love is a giving love. It's not a, it's not a taking love, it's a giving love. And so like First Corinthians 13, love advocates for and wants God's best for the other person. So I'm forbearing with this person because I desire God's best for them. And it's really easy for us to forbear with somebody and in that have a resentment grow. And harbor that resentment. You know what? I have to put up with this person. And I just begin to resent them and resent. I'm forbearing with them. But my resentment is growing. And, and when we bear with one another in love, we don't allow that resentment to grow because generous love is motivated to put up with someone by a genuine desire for that person's good. So God has given us then these four virtues. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. These four virtues of generous love that we pursue in order to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. But if you're like me, these virtues do not come naturally. They're not something that are second nature. They're not explainable or, or even justifiable with reference to the, to the preferences and priorities of our culture, of our world. They will never happen by accident. 
every single one of these graces takes conscious, spirit-filled intention. We must work hard on these virtues with God's help, sparing no effort to pursue and grow in them. Folks, it's hard work. It's like exercise. It's like going to the gym. But God calls us to nurture these for the sake of his body. Now, verses 4 through 6 are really interesting. We're going to go through them really quickly. As we move on in this passage, as Paul's made this appeal for us to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit as he's, as he's given us these virtues with which we can do it, then he bursts out into kind of a poem. It's, it's almost like a hymn or an ode to unity. And he's praising in it the beauty of unity, and at the same time, he's reminding us of our core beliefs. So he has seven one, he's, he repeats one seven times, one body, one spirit, one hope. We're going to go through them. And I'm laying them out here in, in kind of a, a structure that you can kind of see how he, how he builds them on one another. And the first is that we're one body. And here he's referring again to the church. He's using that metaphor of the body is to refer to the church as a unity in diversity. And he's going to play that out here in the rest of this chapter, but he introduces it here, that we're one body, and there's one spirit, the spirit who fills us, the spirit who invigorates us, the spirit who creates unity. He creates the church, and then he empowers the church for unity. There's one hope, and if we're thinking about humility and patience and all those things, one of the things that allows us to endure is our hope, that we would look and know that this world isn't the end, that all things are going to be right one day. It's the future orientation and it drives unity. And then right at the center of these seven is this, is Jesus, our one Lord. Paul puts him right at the center. Jesus and his work is at the center of the church's unity. And then one faith. One faith could, could refer that we trust that God is going to do this work. It also often refers to what we believe, the accepted body of beliefs that unite us as a church around Jesus. We unite around that one faith, and there's one baptism. You see how baptism is parallel there to spirit, and, and this could refer probably to water baptism and spirit baptism, the, the symbol and the reality behind the church's unity, and then finally, there's one God and Father of all who's through all, over all, and through all, and in all. According to chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, all things happen for God, they happen through God, they happen because of God, according to his purpose, to the praise of his glorious grace. And at the end of the day, the unity of the church is what God wants. He wants his church to be one. And it brings him glory when it is one, when it's acting out of its identity, when we're acting out of our identity. And the opposite, when the church isn't one, that dishonors God our Father. So we have this sevenfold unity that's crucial for us to really embrace because it's so important to God. Now in the next section here, we really begin to look at Christ's part in this, the Christ-given diversity of the body in, in verses 7 to 12. And, and Paul begins, after, after this ode to unity, he gives us a disjunct in verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us. So here's this unity, one, 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 one. Everything's one, there's seven ones. But grace was given to each 
one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And so unity is a core and crucial element of our identity. We must fight to preserve it. But Paul says now there's also a diversity in that unity. Unity doesn't mean that we're all the same. It doesn't mean that we should all be the same. Maintaining unity doesn't mean trying to get everyone else to conform to who I want them to be. Once everybody acts the way they ought to act as I want them to, then we'll be great. That's not what unity is. We're all together one, but we're still individuals. And being the church doesn't mean that we lose our personalities. The church is a unity in diversity. Grace was given to each one according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now this is a concise summary of what we call the doctrine of spiritual gifts that, that, that God has given each believer individual grace gifts or spiritual gifts to every believer by his sovereign wisdom, by, by his all graciousness. Christ has handed out these gifts. And another way of saying that is that Jesus is the one who chose the gifts that you have. We're not the ones who chose them. So there's really no reason, if we trust Jesus as our king, to be frustrated about the gifts that he's given us. And some of us, we're like a kid at Christmas, and we open, Grandma gave me socks again. And we look at the ways that God has made us, the, the, the talents that he's given us, the grace that he's given us, and we go, really, this is what, I don't have anything to give. But Jesus has given every single one of us gifts according to his wisdom, according to his goodness, according to his love for the sake of the body. And so we can't be negligent of the gifts he's given us. We can't ignore them. We can't hide them. If Jesus gave them to us, then we'd better use them like he intended for us to use them. Now in verses 8 to 10, we have kind of this obscure passage which most people when they read Ephesians 4 get there and they go yada 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 down to verse 11 but Paul didn't put this section in there so that we'd skip over he put it in there to make a point and he quotes from Psalm 68 18 which pictures the Messiah Jesus as a conquering king who's who's coming home from battle and he's conquered and he has all of these enemies now that he's leading in triumphal procession behind him. And, and as he does so, he's handing out gifts to the crowd, to the masses. This is the kind of thing that the Caesars and the kings of the day would do. They would go out, they would conquer in battle, and they would come back in victorious. Hey, everybody, look at me, how great I am. Not only am I great, but I'm also going to give you gifts to show how really great I am and generous and wonderful I am. Well, this picture is, is picked up by the psalmist in Psalm 68, and then Paul picks it up again and says, this is what Jesus has done when he, when he conquered death, when he conquered sin, when he conquered Satan, he ascended on high, and when he did that, he gave gifts to his people. But Jesus wasn't like other kings. He was a king who conquered, yes, but how did he conquer? Did he conquer by smiting his enemies with a sword? No, he conquered through suffering and humility. He conquered by giving himself to be tortured and hung on a cross. He conquered in the ways that we never would. And that's what Paul means when he notes that in verse 9, Christ descended to the lower regions of the earth to conquer. Jesus adopted humility and went low. 
And so the, the basis for Jesus being able to give us gifts comes from humility, from suffering, from a, from a willing, self-sacrificial service. Which means the way that we're to exercise these gifts that he's given us is through humility. It's through suffering. It's through willing, self-sacrificial service. If our, our, if our king conquered through humility, then we are to serve through humility. A willingness to go to the lower regions of the earth. Humility and service is the way of Christ's people because it is the way of Christ. The way up is always first the way down. He who descended is the one who also ascended. This is verse 10. Far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. He gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be shepherds, teachers. We're going to hit that next week. We see that those leaders are to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body. And here now we have this saint-driven, what I call it, saint-driven maturing of the body. And here's the, here's the picture of the body that he's trying to get to. The picture of the body, the church, is one body with many members and all of us using our gifts, all of us using what Christ has given in order to build up the body. And, and he gives this beautifully intricate metaphor here. He refers back to 2.15 of, of one new humanity, one new man that God has created. And as the body works together, as the church loves each other, it is built up into maturity. The goal in verse verse 13 is mature manhood, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, rather than remaining a baby. The goal for humans is that we grow up. The goal for the church is that it grows up. And the the example, the paragon of maturity is Christ. So when the body, when the church is mature, it will be the spitting image of its head. When we are mature and working together as we're supposed to do, we will look like Christ who gives us the growth and we grow into his image. See, Christ is the head of the body. And then he says it's through the body's connection to him that we function as each part does what it's supposed to do and builds itself up in love. So for the body to be mature, for the church to look like we're supposed to look like Jesus, is for every single part of the body to do what it's supposed to do. Some of you go to the doctor, you go to the hospital, You go to urgent care because something's not working in your body. And the same is true of the church. When one of us is not working, it will cause unhealth. And so unity in the body of Christ is crucial, not for itself, but for the maturing of the body. And the question is, when the church, when the world looks at the body of Christ, do they see Christ? Does the church look like Jesus looks? Or are we stuck with disunity and disorderliness and fights and quarrels and an immature desire for everyone to be the same? That, brothers and sisters, that's how children act. But we're called to be a mature man. It doesn't take much for us to be, as verse 14 says, tossed about by the waves that come along. Because when we're disordered and ununified, chaos results. And so... The call here, the picture here, this beautiful picture is for the body to be a healthy 
body. And key to that, the driving factor to that is generous love. Each part in relation to all the others. Look at verse 16. As the body builds itself up in love. So brothers and sisters, I think as a church we take this. We think, what does it look like for me to to walk in a manner worthy of this grand calling to which I have been called and to which we have been called. For me to walk in humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance and pursue, to lay it all on the field, to spare no expense, to spare no cost, to spare nothing for the unity of the body which Christ himself died for. That's the picture we're going for. The picture that Jesus himself had in his mind as he hung on the cross dying for us. As he prayed in John chapter 17, may my people be one as we, Father, are one. Brothers and sisters, what this takes is impossible. It takes for us to do this. It takes spirit-filled, spirit-empowered, generously loving living. And I want to pray that over us right now, if I could. Let's pray. Jesus, as we come to you, we meditate on this metaphor that Paul has given us. And it seems nearly impossible. It seems nice on paper. But when it gets down to the nitty gritty, when it gets down to real life, it is oh so difficult because of me. Because of us, because of our flesh, because of our desires, because of our tendency to, to prefer the self over the other, because of little things that we get angry over or annoyed by, because we're impatient. Father, would you work in us through your spirit an eagerness, a zealousness to maintain unity? an eagerness to to dive to the bottom of the pile and serve our brothers and sisters with whatever gifts you've given us, not because they're for us, but because they're for the other person. God, would you work in us, Jesus, would you work in us a love that is not natural, that doesn't come from ourselves or our own will or our own desires, but comes from you and from your Spirit. Jesus, we desire as a church that meets in this building, in this place, we desire to look like you to our neighborhoods, to our neighbors, to our families, to our coworkers, to this city. And we desire, as Tom prayed earlier, for the churches in, in central Oregon that proclaim the gospel, that, that, that bow down to you as king, that we would be one. Even as you are one, Lord, that takes, it feels like loss from us, but I I pray, God, that you would work in us a desire and a love, generous love. So, God, we give ourselves to you. As we come and worship, would we, would we bow our hearts as we bow our knees before you? We ask you to change us, and we ask you to build up this body in love for your sake and for your glory. Amen.